1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. This episode is going to be a bit different than normal, so let me take a moment to explain. At the end of the Washington series, I put out a call to listeners for questions in order to give all of you the opportunity to ask for clarification on anything that I might have missed or for more explanation on subjects that we may have covered, but not as extensively as your curiosity would have liked. I took some time to research the questions that came in, and before we move into the actual Adams presidency, I wanted to provide some answers as part of the transition. This is going to be more informal than regular episodes, and will cover a diverse range of topics. I am grouping a couple of them together where it seems appropriate, but we are going to jump around a little bit. If you didn't get a chance to submit a question, I'm always glad to provide what insight I can on the Washington Presidency, even as we move forward in our narrative. Please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies on Twitter at presidencies89 and I can even be found on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. With that said, Let's get started. Our first question comes from Andrew, who asks, Why is George Washington the only white man allowed in Indian heaven? Andrew is a co-host on the Iroquois History and Legends podcast, which, if you haven't checked it out already, is highly recommended for a greater understanding of the Haudenosaunee, and had come across this question in his own research and thought it would be fascinating for listeners of this podcast to learn about. I was actually able to find the answer to this in a book just released by Colin Calloway, who is the author of a book that I used as a reference on St. Clair's defeat. This new book, released earlier this year, 2018 for any future listeners, is entitled The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First Americans, and The Birth of the Nation. Calloway's information on this comes from anthropologist Lewis Henry Morgan's 1851 book, The League of the Iroquois. In the Iroquois belief system, there was a distinct heaven for Native Americans, and white people were not allowed in the Native American heaven. As explained by Morgan, quote, Not having been created by the Great Spirit, no provision was made for him, i.e. the white man, in their, the Native American, scheme of theology. The Iroquois, however, felt that an exception had been made for Washington, and that, quote, when he, i.e. Washington, died, he was not allowed to go into the presence of the Great Spirit, but, dressed in his uniform and in a state of perfect felicity, resided just outside the Iroquois heaven, destined to remain there through eternity in the solitary enjoyment of the celestial residence prepared for him by the Great Spirit. This residence was described by Morgan as, quote, a walled enclosure with a spacious mansion, constructed in the fashion of a fort. The faithful Indian, as he enters heaven, passes this enclosure. He sees and recognizes the illustrious inmate as he walks to and fro in quiet meditation. But no word ever passes his lips. Why, you ask, would George Washington, who had fought against Native Americans in the French and Indian War and in the Revolution, be allowed a special adjoining space to the Iroquois Heaven? Calloway explains that it was felt that, as president. He was kind to Indians when he could have killed them all, protected their rights, and advocated policies of the most enlightened justice and humanity. As we saw during the series on his presidency, time and again, Washington sought a peaceful solution to issues with Native American nations first, and it was the policy of the administration to prevent white colonists and settlers from taking advantage of Native Americans and indiscriminately attacking the villages of Native peoples. Now, it must be noted that even with this supposed benevolence, the aim was often to acquire new land for white settlement, and there was a general belief that Native Americans were inferior to white men. As we'll see in later series, administration policy towards Native Americans would become much more belligerent as the public demand for new land and the desire to expand continued to grow. Washington, for his part, sought to act in good faith and in what he saw as a fair and honorable manner, even if the means or the results may not appear to be quite as fair or honorable to contemporary students of the era as they were to the president. I should also note that Calloway presents another possible explanation for the Haudenosaunee to share this legend with the white anthropologist Lewis Henry Morgan. Calloway explains that Native American professions of grief upon Washington's death was part of, quote, The Rhetoric and Strategy of Diplomacy. Indian leaders knew they could leverage Washington's image and reputation among Americans to help secure Indian goals. Certainly, this explanation is not out of the question, in my opinion. Thus, Washington's spot in the Native American afterlife seems to be the Haudenosaunee's way of saying, thanks, Washington, for not killing us all. Oh, and by the way, Americans, did we mention that we allowed your Washington a place in our heaven? That's
0: shopify.com slash specialoffer.
1: The next question was from a listener who wished to remain anonymous. The question is, my college professor told our class that George Washington had contracted venereal disease during the French and Indian Wars. Could it be true? When dealing with history, it can often be difficult to say that something is 100% true or untrue. So while this could possibly be true, we have little evidence to support it. First, let's start with what we know about Washington's love life. Again, this is not something that we can say with certainty, but we have no evidence that Washington engaged in sexual relationships either before or outside of his marriage to Martha. We assume that George and Martha's relationship was consummated, and it is quite possible that he had a dalliance or two prior to their marriage, as it was pretty common practice for young men at the time. We just don't have any proof of it. Now, allegations did surface in the 1940s that Washington had engaged in sexual intercourse with Venus, a woman enslaved by his brother, John Augustine Washington, and that this sexual violation resulted in the birth of West Ford, who was brought to Mount Vernon when John Augustine's son, Bushrod Washington, took ownership of the plantation in 1802. There is no documentary evidence that George Washington ever had sexual relations with Venus, and no contemporary accounts exist about the story, like those about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, but I note this as it is one of the few bits of gossip about Washington that there is to be found. The other evidence can be found in what we know about his physical health. It seems like for the majority of his life, he was quite physically fit. As we discussed in the series, Washington did have a number of medical issues, sometimes quite severe, that came up during his presidency. But part of that can be explained by the stress and strain that the sometimes emotionally taxing position could generate. There are, however, no remarks about his health that would indicate anything out of the ordinary like a venereal disease. But there is an indication that he may have had reproductive issues. As far as we know, Washington never had any children. Now, it is possible for a sexually transmitted disease such as chlamydia or gonorrhea to adversely affect an individual's fertility, but we have nothing in his known medical history that would point towards that. There are, however, two documented parts of his medical history that could explain his possible infertility. George Washington, in his early days, contracted smallpox while traveling with his half-brother Lawrence to Barbados. Though he lived to tell the tale, survivors of smallpox do have lower fertility rates than normal. Another theory is that a bout with genitourinary tuberculosis left him unable to have children. There's no way to know for certain whether Washington was infertile at all, other than the fact that he had no known children. But since Martha had four children with her first husband, and we assume that George and Martha had marital relations while she was still of childbearing age, It does seem to suggest that the issue was with George and not Martha. To wrap up and move on, while it is possible that he had a venereal disease, unless your college professor has found some source of which I'm not aware, there's no documentary evidence to indicate anything of the sort, and more to point to it being less likely than not. While we're on the subject of Washington and his relations with the ladies, The podcast friends at Totalis Rancium asked, When did Washington become obsessed with all the ladies? When did he start writing the stats? To really give you a sense of the context, I highly recommend that you go and check out their two-part series on Washington. During their research on Washington, Rob and Jamie discovered numerous instances in Washington's diary from his Southern tour in 1791 in which he referred to the number of women that he came across. Just for an example, I'll give you the following. Tuesday, May 3rd, quote, was visited about two o'clock by a great number of the most respectable ladies of Charleston, the first honor of the kind I had ever experienced, and it was as flattering as it was singular. The next day, May 4th, quote, dined with the members of the Cincinnati and in the evening went to a very elegant dancing assembly at the exchange, at which were 256 elegantly dressed and handsome ladies. The specificity of the number in this entry was quite amusing to Robin Jamie, but his tour of the ladies didn't stop there. Thursday, May 5th, quote, dined with a very large company at the governor's, and in the evening went to a concert at the exchange, at which there were at least 400 ladies, the number and appearance of which exceeded anything of the kind I had ever seen. Ladies also got mentions in entries on the 13th, the 18th, the 19th, the 23rd, the 25th, and the 30th of that month, as he traveled to Savannah, Georgia, Columbia, South Carolina, and Salisbury, North Carolina. Before you ask, no, Martha did not accompany him on that Southern tour. As to Washington and the ladies, he was early on in life drawn to women. As described by a British officer, he observed during a dinner when, quote, women left his dining room after meals, only to be squired right back in by Washington. Washington was noted as saying that, quote, he had a very great esteem for the ladies and therefore drank them in preference to anything else. His correspondence with female friends is also full of examples of, quote, a breezily flirtatious tone. He would write to a female poet who had sent him an ode to honor him that, quote, when once the woman has tempted us and we have tasted the forbidden fruit, there is no such thing as checking our appetites. Whatever, whatever, the consequences may be. Ron Chernow, in his biography of Washington, speculated that, quote, his light-hearted tone in his correspondence with female friends may be due to, quote, the role of repressed sexuality in George Washington's life. We have no evidence that he ever talked to Martha in this coy manner, nor is it easy to imagine. For all the happiness of their marriage, Martha had become his life's standard prose while other women may have introduced some forbidden spice of poetry. Thus, it seems that it was a lifetime thing for Washington to be a big flirt. But as we discussed before, we have no indication that he ever took it any further beyond flirting. The next question comes from Elizabeth and is as follows. i had heard that during Washington's presidency, he wanted everyone to call him his excellency and refused to shake anyone's hand. Any truth to this? This one requires a little backstory about society at the time, though it's difficult for us to understand in the present day as it's not nearly as prevalent. As explained by Kathleen Bartoloni Tuizon in her excellent book For Fear of an Elective King, George Washington and the Presidential Title Controversy of 1789, in the United States of the late 18th century, quote, the fact was that appellations denoting military rank, occupational station, and political office were entrenched in the American experience. Titles of elite status, especially for governors and military officers, remained coveted by many in the early republic and were used throughout an individual's life. As much as they suggested an unwanted holdover from the days of monarchical rule, titles quickly were shown to be a means of social, economic, and political advancement for Americans of all social strata. Thus, it's not surprising that one that found himself at the very top of the social ladder in the United States would have a title of his own. His Excellency actually stems from the very beginning of the Revolutionary War. As early as 1775, the legislatures of New York and Massachusetts sent letters to the new Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army referring to him as, quote-unquote, His Excellency, which was, as noted by Bartoloni Tuezong, a long-standing title given to British colonial governors who served as the commander-in-chief of colonial forces. It was also, quote, commonly used for ambassadors, ministers, governors, and other highly placed officials. It was felt that part of combating the British would be in establishing the colonies as equals, and thus they would need equal titles for American officials and leaders to convey that importance. As for shaking hands, this is most likely in reference to the presidential levies. At the beginning of the presidency, Washington had decided that to appease the large number of people wishing to see him, he would schedule a reception every Tuesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Promptly at 3, the doors to the dining room at the presidential mansion were thrown open and guests filed in. At 3.15, they were shut so that no further visitors would be admitted. When they entered, Guests would find the president standing by the fireplace. Visitors would come in, bow to Washington, and he would bow in return. Then the visitors would take their place in a standing circle. In order to convey the majesty of his office as an equal to European monarchs, Washington would not shake hands at the levees. Instead, he'd hold on to his sword handle or would have a hat in his hands to avoid direct contact. He'd go around briefly chatting with folks until time came for the levee to end at four, at which time the visitors would come up to Washington once more, bow, and leave the dining room. This levee was meticulously designed stagecraft to make everyone in attendance feel the importance of the president. At Martha's receptions for ladies on Friday evenings, he was much more relaxed. One visitor noted that, quote, the young ladies used to throng around him and engage him in conversation. And yes, Rob and Jamie, I can hear you saying, of course they did, and he counted every last one. He even had one diary entry where he complained that, quote, the company this evening was thin, especially of ladies. Always with the ladies he was. He was described in numerous instances where he was dealing with strangers as being aloof and rigid but he could have times with family and close friends where he was much more relaxed and dropped the mask of quote-unquote gray dignity that he wore for increasingly longer periods of time the later in his public career he went. The next question was from an anonymous listener and is as follows. If Washington had known that slavery wasn't going to die off but expand and there would be a civil war over it, would he and others try to at least put limits on slavery expansion? This is a speculative question, and we really have no way of knowing for certain. However, I feel that if Washington knew of the ultimate consequences that the continuation of slavery would have, he would have felt it his public duty to act to end it. As it was, many people at the time of his presidency felt that the slave system would ultimately end as more states were passing laws to limit or end the practice. And discussions were happening in most states, including even in Virginia, where there was an abolition society in the capital of Richmond. Had the United States remained a nation hugging the eastern seaboard, that might, in fact, have been the case. However, two developments happened during Washington's time that would give slavery new life. First, as discussed in episode 1.12, the invention of the cotton gin would make cotton production much more profitable, and Southerners would take advantage of slave labor and fertile soil to make fortunes off of this newly profitable industry. Second, the nation started to expand westward, and Western settlers from slave states would bring enslaved people to help them to establish new settlements and plantations in what they considered a wilderness. As we've talked about numerous times, it seems that Washington personally felt that slavery was wrong and was indeed thinking about ways in which he could survive financially without enslaving individuals. As a public official, however, he felt that national unity was more of a pressing issue than dealing with the moral ramifications of a system that he and others thought was likely on its way out anyway. Thus, he signed a bill to strengthen fugitive slave laws, which would appease slave-owning states, as well as a bill to limit American involvement in the international slave trade, which would be cheered by anti-slavery advocates. As much as possible, though, he would take a tact, which would be adopted by other contemporaries as well as future politicians, to avoid the third rail that was slavery. As for whether his contemporaries would have acted to end slavery if they had known it would lead to the Civil War, I think that some would, while others wouldn't. Again, as we've seen numerous times in our narrative, there are many who saw civil war as inevitable for many different reasons. While there were some that voluntarily freed the people they enslaved, and likely there would have been more if they knew what the future would bring, I think there would have been many who would have said selfishly that they shouldn't suffer personally or economically because of something that would probably happen anyway for a reason other than slavery. Maybe the people of the past would surprise me, but I think that they are more like our contemporaries than we'd sometimes like to believe, and while there are some who would listen to their better angels, others would prove to be all too human. Next up is another speculative question from an anonymous listener. If Hamilton hadn't had an affair with Maria Reynolds, would he have been president? Again, there's no way to know for certain, but I imagine that he likely would have tried and possibly as early as 1796. As discussed in the episodes on that election, Hamilton was in search of someone other than Adams to put up for nomination. If numerous prominent Democratic Republicans didn't know of his affair with Maria Reynolds, I can see him riding Washington's coattails and positioning himself as the candidate most likely to carry forward Washington's legacy, a legacy that Hamilton felt he had a large part in crafting. Would he have won, though? Now, that's another question. Like Jay, Hamilton was rather of a lightning rod by 1796. Depending on which party a person was aligned, one typically either saw Hamilton as a brilliant leader or as a wannabe despot. Meanwhile, it's likely that Adams would still have wanted to stand for election as he had little to no respect for Hamilton and felt that, having served as vice president for eight years, it was rightfully his turn. Thus, Adams and Hamilton may have split the Federalist vote and Jefferson may have ended up as the second president. There really is no way of knowing for certain. If Hamilton had ever become president, I imagine that he would have been highly organized, but he would have invoked much more opposition than Washington or even John Adams. Our next question is from Les, who asked, did Washington consider the Federalists a political party? I would say that he did, but not in the same way that he considered the Democratic-Republicans, and certainly not in the same way as we now consider political parties. From my research into the time period, I think Washington would have argued that the Federalists were just those who supported his administration's policies, which he saw as sensible and patriotic. When he referred to people engaging in factionalism, he was really talking about what we label the Democratic-Republicans. As we've seen in the Washington series, and as we'll continue to see in the Adams series, the Democratic-Republicans were much more organized than the Federalists. In some ways, the Federalists were just a response to the opposition. They started working in alignment out of necessity, rather than any intention to form a Federalist political party. Whereas the Democratic-Republican societies and subsequent efforts to organize were very deliberate attempts to organize an opposition to Washington and the administration. Though he spent his second term railing against efforts to organize political parties, by 1799, Washington wrote to Jonathan Trumbull asking, quote, Will not the Federalists meet, or rather defend their cause, on the opposite ground? Surely they must, or they will discover a want of policy indicative of weakness and pregnant of mischief, which cannot be admitted. By that point, even Washington was calling on the Federalists to organize in the same way as the Democratic-Republicans. The first-party system was still much more disorganized than modern political parties, but these were the seeds of what would become our more developed and complex two-party apparatus. As the next two questions are related, I'm going to answer them together. Les asked if Washington ever publicly recommended a successor, while an anonymous listener wondered whether Washington privately had a preferred successor. Publicly, Washington maintained an air of silence about the election. He focused more on concluding his public business and all the farewell celebrations that were thrown as the end of his term drew nearer. Privately, though, it does seem as if he had a preference. As early as March 1796, Before Washington had even announced his intentions publicly, he started taking Adams to the side and discussing policy matters, the current state of politics, and foreign relations. Now, I've yet to find where Washington gave an explanation as to why he did this. Adams had been, for the most part, shut out of the administration since 1789, and Washington sought the counsel of others rather than that of his vice president. However, if one looks at the field of contenders, as we did in episode 1.33, one can see how Washington might settle on Adams as the best person to succeed him. Hamilton was too much of a lightning rod to run. Same with Jay. Washington likely knew Patrick Henry well enough to know he wouldn't give it a serious go. Though he hadn't made his complete break with Jefferson yet, he knew Jefferson's stance to be far from his. Same with George Clinton. What he knew of Thomas Pinckney might be promising, but John Adams was the elder statesman and wasn't far off from Washington's ideology. Adams was really the candidate with the viewpoints closest to Washington's and was someone he had known for a good while since they had served together in the First Continental Congress back in the day. We'll see what Washington thinks of his successor as we go on in the Adams series. Our final question comes from Kimberly, who asked... What do you think Washington would make of the president and country today? Now, I'm not going to begin to speculate what Washington would think of an individual who was born nearly a century and a half after his death, but Washington does leave us some ideas of what he might think of the modern presidency. First, I think he would appreciate the increased power and authority in the executive branch now versus earlier points in history. Washington would often get frustrated with legislative debates and wasn't afraid to make his own policies without consulting Congress. Case in point, the Neutrality Proclamation. However, I think he would also caution that there is always a need to ensure that there are sufficient checks and balances to keep any one branch of government from becoming too powerful. While he might get frustrated with some of the checks that he ran up against, he also appreciated that it wasn't just about him and thus, the viewpoints of other branches of government needed to be taken into account. I do not think he would like how much the presidency has become about optics and media. While understanding the necessity of leaders being on display from time to time, Washington could also be a very private person. When he set a boundary between his public responsibilities and his private life, he expected all to abide by it. He also would not like the state of partisan politics and, as he did in his farewell address, would likely urge people of the present day to put the good of the nation before that of any party. In terms of the nation, I think, by and large, he would be proud of it. Washington and his contemporaries had no idea that the nation would ever span from one ocean to another, and I think they would marvel at the technological innovations and improvements in the quality of life that we've made. I think he would feel that his efforts on the nation's behalf were worth it, but would caution that the work was not yet done. I believe he would urge Americans to public service and to serve their communities and their nation to the best of their ability. That about wraps it up. Thank you so much for joining me for this special episode. I did use some sources for this episode, and those can be found at presidencies.blueberry, That's presidencies.blueberry.com. Again, should you have any comments or questions moving forward, reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89 or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. I hope you'll join me back here in two weeks time as we get rolling with the Adams presidency and see just how Washington's successors first few days on the job go. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends.
0: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world